This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Well, here in The Think Tank, we usually cover issues, but the month of April has turned out to be a month characterized by what I would call the Interesting People Month. We're we're now in week three of those interesting people. We've uh, spoken to Ernie Calderon, to Francine Hardaway, a couple of my favorite people, and our guest this week is Fernanda Santos. And uh, the uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, an old friend of mine, Terry Green Sterling, is going to be on to talk about her new book about Sheriff Go- Joe. Uh, if you missed those earlier shows and any of that interests you. The podcast of these broadcasts are available at KTAR.com. Welcome to the show, Fernanda Santos. Great to be here, Mike. Well, you've got an interesting life story. You're an immigrant, but you're kind of the the other kind of immigrant that we don't think about as much. You are educated and you came here to the U.S. for graduate school at uh, Boston University to further a career in journalism. Was it your original intention to stay or just to come here for education? So I want to start with addressing the immigrant thing. I think that, you know, uh, it's very important to address that because I am not an exception, but I have been made, people like me, immigrants like me, have been made to feel or others feel that we are the exception because they're so used and so they have been so conditioned to hearing the word immigrant and immediately thinking about unauthorized uh, immigrants um, and immediately thinking about the U.S.-Mexico border and immediately thinking about people sneaking into the country with, um, you know, um, whether it be with drugs on their backs or not, but there is this very clear image that um, that has been created, and it's an image that evokes a lot of fear, a lot of um, a lot of uh, you know questions about safety uh, and so forth. And I I am very proud to be an immigrant, and I am very proud to say that there are many many immigrants out there like me who are very well educated who may not be very well educated, but are very successful. And when I'm, what I mean by that is a formal education, right? So I just want to establish that from, from the start. And no, I did not come here to stay. I, I did not have any desire to stay in this country. I um, grew up with the idea of this being the country of opportunity, which is how many, many people across the world have grown up. Uh, it's an image that this country has sold to the world, uh, very rightfully so, because it is a place where people, where there are more opportunities, many more than in my home country of Brazil, many more than in Central American countries or Mexico. Um, but uh, but when I came here, I was strictly thinking about spending a year uh, at Boston University for graduate school in journalism maybe an extra year if I got a job at a newspaper, since there is a provision that allows for foreign students to get a work visa that's valid for a year after they finish their studies. And then go back to to Rio, uh, where my family was living at the time, Rio de Janeiro, and and, uh, and get a job at a newspaper there, you know, just kind of create a career or solidify my career there, not here. 
So tell me, uh, and this will be of interest to, uh, I, I think your students and others who, who, who thought about a career in journalism, uh, uh, you typically have to take a, a first job that probably isn't where you want to end up. Uh, one of them happened to be in my hometown of Springfield, which I found fascinating. <laughs> and we talked about this beforehand, uh, uh, where you covered an even smaller town called Wilbraham, where, again, I, I grew up there and lived there for 15 years, and I don't remember anything ever happening there. Not much happened in Wilbraham. I had I actually covered two towns, Wilbraham and Hamden. Um, now imagine anybody can see themselves. You don't have to be a, an immigrant to imagine yourself in this situation, right? But ima so imagine yourself getting to a place where nobody looks like you, where people tend to be very small, very. Um, uh, focus in their own little community and their, their worlds are very small. Um, imagine a place where the political system is very, very different than anything you have ever been exposed to. So that's what I, what my first job in this country was. So you were right when you say often in journalism, your first job, and I think in many careers, your first job may not necessarily be uh, often is not your I, your dream job or not in the company where you plan to stay the rest of your career, right? There is a, this idea of climbing the ladder it doesn't apply to just journalism. In my case, my first job was hugely challenging because there was so much I had to adjust to outside of the journalism. The journalism was the easiest part. I mean, there was a challenge of writing in English, which is not my native language. And even though I, you know, write in English and speak fairly well in English and, you know, uh, have lost most of my accent uh, or much of my accent, at least. Um, back then, um, that wasn't the case. You know, I spoke good English. I, you know, I could write in English, but I still had to get used to uh, writing stories on deadline and things like that in a language that wasn't my own. But in some ways, I think that challenge didn't become such a huge challenge to me because the other stuff was a lot more challenging. You know, being the one who everybody looks at when you walk into a room to cover a board of selectmen meeting, which uh, unless you're from New England, you probably have never heard of it. And that's the equivalent to your town council. Um, New England has a very specific system of government, as you know, coming from a city in New England. Um, Although Springfield being a city had a different system of government than the towns around I, it. I think had you been given the Springfield bit, you would have found the politics entirely different and probably a whole lot dirtier. Yeah, and I and it probably would have been a lot more familiar to me to what I was used to coming from Brazil than than what I was exposed to in Wilbraham. Uh, one of my I don't have a lot of vivid memories from stories I covered in Wilbraham and Hampton largely because none of these stories really stood out to me as being, you know, stuff that like I want to put on my portfolio and, and show my my potential em employers, although I did have to do that to get my next job. But um, my most vivid memory, well, there are two. One was a dog hearing. So there was a hearing over a neighbor's barking dog. And it was the most heated argument I had ever witnessed in 
government at that stage in my life, I was in my early to mid twenties. And all the time I'm thinking, why are they arguing over a barking dog? I mean, <laughs> there's so many things that are so much more important, but again, in a small town, you know, the, the things that us people from big cities may think are small things become big deals. Um, and so I remember very vividly this, uh, hearing at the board of selectmen meeting. And I also remember meeting the athletic director for the Wilbraham Hamden um, Unified School District, uh, regional school district, I don't remember the name. And I, uh, he was an athletic director for the high school and I introduced myself. I said, I'm the new reporter here. And he said, oh yeah, I heard of you. I said, okay. Um, so I'd love to set up a time to go talk to you at the school and, and hear about your students, about the programs you have, you know, anything that a new reporter in town should do. And he said to me, you know, we're all pretty vanilla here, which to me was kind of like a way of saying we're not interesting at all. Um, so don't waste your time spending time with us. Um, I'm sure that's not what he meant. Um, he was probably just trying to dissuade me. Uh, but that really struck me as like, wow, if your athletic director says that about you, what am I doing here? You know, let me get the heck out of this place. <laughs> we'll pick up your most interesting career, which takes better turns thereafter when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. Let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Fernanda Santos. We're talking about her interesting career path. Uh, you start out in a small town paper in New England and uh, end up in the New York Times. And as a journalist, it doesn't get much better than that. How'd that happen? You know, it's funny. It's one of the most frequent questions I get by email from, uh, you know, aspiring journalists or young journalists. How did you get to the New York Times? And I always say, if there was a formula, I would have trademarked it and I would be a multimillionaire right now. <laughs> I think it was a mix of uh, being in the right place at the right time uh, being lucky, I think there was some luck, blessings, however you want to, um, you know, um, uh, characterize that. And you also have to be good. Right. I was just going to say, and obviously you also have to be good. And I am not afraid to say that I'm really good at what I do. I think there's nothing wrong in admitting or, or acknowledging um, our strengths and also our weaknesses. Uh, I'm not afraid of them. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I left uh, Springfield. I went to work at a newspaper in Northern Massachusetts in um, Lawrence, Massachusetts. And then from there, I went to the New York, New York Daily News. Um, basically, again, like a strike of luck. I was I was in New York on 9-11. I moved into reporter mode. I was visiting friends and, and ended up reporting on that story, met some journalists from the Daily News and also had met them through a um, an affinity uh, group of, of uh, Latino journalists. Um, and they, you know, mentioned my name at the Daily News. Next thing I knew, I was working there. 
And one, one of my assignments at the Daily News, my favorite assignment was at um, NYPD headquarters. So I was a police reporter, police and fire. I covered mostly the FDNY, the, the New York Fire Department. But we had an office inside NYPD headquarters at one police plaza in, in, uh, in New York. And um, reporters from other newspapers were there, too, including reporters for The New York Times. And I befriended one of them. And um, unbeknownst to me, this reporter and the bureau chief for The Times mentioned to a Times recruiter that, you know, they should start looking into me and my work because they, they liked my my work, that they liked me. Obviously, they knew that I spoke Spanish, even though Portuguese is my native language. I'm also fluent in Spanish. So that's always a plus. It's a competitive advantage, as I tell everybody. Any language that you speak, from sign language to Greek, whatever you speak, it's it's a competitive advantage. And uh, and this recruiter contacted me. We talked, um, and uh, she said to me, "You know, we really like you, but we don't know if you can write." And what she meant by that was that I had been writing for a tabloid, so short stories, punchy, that kind mm-hmm. of very different style, right? So I quit my job at the Daily News. I applied for a fellowship that doesn't exist anymore, but it, it, I was selected for it. And I went to Colombia to do some stories at the start of the uh, disarming process of the um, guerrillas um, that had been fighting a civil war essentially um, f- for years uh, there and um, for decades. And, uh, and I published some stories as a freelancer. I was very aggressive, wrote several stories pushed them to newspapers that didn't have reporters in Latin America. And then I told the recruiter, here, I can write. Here's what I did. Look, I wrote these stories, uh, Christian Science Monitor, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, New York Newsday. And she was like, okay, well, let's talk. And as I had been told, um, to be to get a job at the Times, it's almost like a courtship. You know, it doesn't have, it's not like a, a a one night stand like that happens quickly, you know, it's really a courtship. And uh, in the meantime, while I waited to hear back from the Times, I worked at People magazine. And I am proud to say that I was the reporter who discovered the adoption agency used by Angelina Jolie to adopt her first baby from Ethiopia. Um, and that's pretty much my claim to fame there. And uh, I was it was clear to me that I didn't belong in people when I realized that I didn't know that Britney Spears was pregnant. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> or probably think it was important. <laughs> exactly. Both. Yeah, exactly. We got 30 seconds. A really quick question that just struck yeah. me. How does a freelancer sell stories? How do you do it? You very you, you know how to answer the question. My story is about in a clear, concise and compelling way. Um, you introduce yourself and you highlight what you've done uh, at the top of the email. Second paragraph, this explanation of your story. Third paragraph, who you have access to, who you have already secured access to, and uh, and that's it. And you, so you have the story in your mind, but not necessarily have written it. Right. Most editors would like to work with you to to help shape your idea too. Um, there are times my students are great examples of that where they work on a on a really good story for my narrative writing class, and they end up publishing it. So. You know, but but usually you don't write the story ahead of time. Okay, we'll be back with Fernando Santos after the break in the Think Tank. Silver cities rise, the morning lights, the streets that lead them, and silence call them on with a song. 
Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Uh, we are here with Fernanda Santos. Uh, you were, uh, the uh, when you got hired by the New York Times, uh, uh, became, uh, what, what ended up appointed as a Phoenix bureau chief. Uh, in Phoenix, I think you might have been the first one, is that correct? I was the second one, but my predecessor was here very, you know, for a short period of time. I think he wasn't even here for two years. He uh, ended up moving to become the national editor of the Times, and uh, today he's the an assistant managing editor running our li- the Times live um, uh, vertical, you know, live coverage of breaking events. I assume it was uh, immigration issues and that whole thing that uh, basically made the Times uh, consider that Phoenix warranted a bureau. Was it driven mostly by that? You know, I I would say yes. I I'm not privy to the specific discussions as to why it made sense to start to to have a correspondent base here. But yes, I mean, you know, I I'm I'm fairly confident that it's a good assumption to have. But the thing about Arizona too, that you know, and and New Mexico, uh, which I also covered, and sometimes Texas, like you know, West Texas, is that there's a lot about this region that, especially Arizona, that functions like a microcosm of the country, and in many ways has been ahead of the rest of the country, um, without people paying much attention to it other than in the inflection point, you know, election and, you know, migrants on the border. Um, But if you live here, as I have since 2012, and I have really tried to to have a broad range of of sources and people and relationships and connections, um, you get to understand that a lot of the uh, questions or, or over like, how could you know, um, uh, who is a Republican and what is the Republican Party? Well, Arizona has been offering this answer for quite some time. There is no single definition. You know, the Republican Party has many meanings in this state. Being a Republican has different meanings. Being a conservative, especially, to step away from partisan labels, right, has many meanings. And, um, uh, And that was partly one of my biggest learning lessons here is that instead of coming and with the assumptions of Arizona that are the stereotypical assumptions held by people in the Northeastern United States, I came here with the same eyes and curiosity of an immigrant covering Wilbraham and Hamden in New England, you know, two small white towns in New England. I wanted to learn. I wanted to figure out how this place worked. And, um, I'm not, I don't think I was successful every time, but I think that that there were times that I had to fight with my editors because of the angle of the stories that I took was not the one that they were expecting me to take. I still think that I was somewhat misunderstood by them and that the Arizona was somewhat misunderstood by them. Um, And, uh, but I, I stand, uh, you know, firm on my conviction that if you try to define the state in some ways, like Governor Ducey has been trying to do, you know, the border, migrants, unsafe, you're making a big mistake because you are, or the legislature, the Republican legislature, you know, with voting laws restricting because this is a place of fraud. 
you are contributing to reinforcing the stereotypes that have worked against Arizona. I don't care what other people say. It has worked nationally against Arizona. Could you elaborate on, uh, you, you used an interesting phrase, how you think Arizona and Arizona politics was misunderstood back east. I wonder if you could elaborate on in what ways a little bit more. Well, there, it, we're living this very interesting, we have been living here, right, in this state, this very interesting time of transition that um, in part has to do with the de purely demographics. Uh, the state demo demographic makeup has been changing. Um, whether you like it or not, by 2030 or thereabouts, we will be what is known as a minority majority state. So I always say then what do we call Anglo white people minority once that happens like, you know, so step away from the labels for a minute and just accept that the demographic of the state is changing. So part of the changes are happening because of that. The children of undocumented immigrants who were persecuted by Sheriff Arpaio who were victimized uh, uh, by, uh, you know, uh, policies and politics that place their children at a disadvantage or young children who are brought here without papers at a disadvantage. Um, these, these kids have now grown up to become leaders in their communities. Um, some of them are being elected into public office, like Carlos Garcia, city council member in Phoenix, Raquel Teran, who is an organizer, um, and he's a, is a state uh, legislator, um, Tony Navarrete, there are many others, many other names. So so there is this, this change that's kind of inevitable. Um, but I also think that, you know, because, the headlines are so much sexier when you're talking about crazy Republicans from Arizona at it again. So instead of focusing on the Republicans who are proposing something that very likely is wrong and or will not pass or will take the state backwards, uh, I challenge everybody and I challenge myself especially to approach these stories from an angle that is the opposite. What is the resistance to this? What are the disadvantages to this? What are the other stories that we're missing out on because we're so narrowly focused on these things that people are clicking and clicking and clicking all the time? Maybe they just click but don't really read because it reinforces their beliefs. So how about talking about stuff that that everybody's talking about but just come at it from a different perspective? And, and that's what I think leads to a lot of the misunderstanding here. We're still reporting on a, with a notion of Arizona that is not exactly what Arizona is. But our, our elected officials don't help much, to be frank. One of the interesting, I think, possibly underreported angles on this is notwithstanding all of this, uh, uh, upwards of 30% of the Hispanic vote went to Donald Trump. Right. Which, which is a head scratcher to me. It's not to me at all, because again, you who created the labels, Latino, Hispanic, I didn't come from Brazil and create this label. My friends who are Mexican-Americans didn't create this label. The power structures, which have always been dominated, historically been dominated by white people, created these labels. And then they, then, and the next step was assume, they assumed that everybody who fall, who, who fit under this umbrella, believe in the same things, are of the same, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, heritage, have the same uh, cultural, religious, political values and beliefs. And that is not true. It's, you know, what if I said every white person is racist? Would that be true? 
No, and nobody makes that type of statement because we understand that there is that white people mean so many different things. So when we get surprised by 30% of the vote uh, to Trump uh, being coming from Hispanic or Latino voters, um, to me, it only shows that you haven't taken the time. And I don't mean this as a, as a criticism of you, but you know, you really, people really should take the time to peel the layers and understand who are these people? Did they vote for Trump because they're Latino? Or did they vote for Trump because they are people who believe in the things that Trump Trump believed in and, and uh, stood for uh, and stands for to this day? So I think when we approach things that way without relying so much on these labels that are really just crutches, um, I think that our understanding of the changes around us become a lot more nuanced and a lot more sophisticated. Fair point. We'll be back in the concluding segment with Fernando Santos after the break. We're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters. Let the river Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back with Fernanda Santos, who is currently a professor of journalism at ASU. Uh, and that's something I'd, I'd like to explore a little bit because you left the New York Times, what many would many would see as the ultimate pinnacle in journalism. Uh, you left that for academic life. What happened? Well, first of all, I didn't leave it for academic life because my life is very much of a practitioner's life. You know, I still I have never stopped writing, uh, creating. Um, I left it um, because at the time I believed that even though too many I had reached the pinnacle of uh, the profession, I felt that I had a lot of creative energy and a lot of unrealized potential that um, I needed to take someplace else with no hard feelings. Um, I, I was at the Times for almost 12 years. I left, uh, I think, two months short of my 12th anniversary. I learning tremendously at the Times. I had some incredible experiences there. I made some really good friends at the Times, um, but it was just time to go, you know, um, and so I chose to stay in Arizona because I believed in bearing witness and writing about the changes that I was seeing here from inside out, as opposed to outside in perspective that is common um, when people write about Arizona. Um, so I was positioning myself strategically to be a trusted voice in Arizona for national publications that would want someone they could trust writing from here. Um, so there was a very strategic decision. There was a life decision. Um, it's such an awesome state. I, I just absolutely love living in Arizona. I love the wide open spaces. I love the trails. I even like the heat, you know, it's, I mean, I don't like the cold of the Northeast, never did. I'd much rather live here in the summer than uh, the long winters in Massachusetts and New York that I had before. Um, 
And then, you know, obviously, um, I mean, not obviously, uh, you know, but but maybe your listeners don't know. Uh, my husband, shortly after I uh, decided to stay here, a few months later, when we were like happy to settle into our new life, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, and he died within 30 days of his diagnosis. So staying in Arizona and working at Cronkite was also a way, a very stabilizing thing in my life. I have an incredible team at Cronkite. ASU is a very creative university, very open to new ideas, very open to new people, very open to me. Um, and I felt that there was no better place for me to be as I try to figure things out for my future uh, than where I was in terms of the state and also the place of work. You have uh, become affiliated with kind of the uh, Times uh, sort of uh, Principal nemesis, I would say, for national <laughs> uh, national prominence, at least in the political area, uh, the Washington Post. Uh, you have some observations about how the how the institutions differ. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was a reporter for the Times, and I'm a, a contributing columnist for the Post, so so that like really means a position where I have no chains, you know, I'm not chained. I'm not carrying on my shoulders. I mean, there is the weight of the institution, but it, it, it's carried in a very different way. Um, it's almost like the institution is walking next to me, holding my hand as opposed to on my shoulders, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a lighter, more pleasant way to, to deal with it. I also think the post, the post seems to me to be a younger newspaper, more vital, more nimble, um, you know, uh, more open to ideas, although the Times has made great strides um, in terms of, of, of becoming more woke, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I also, after 12 years there, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I'm kind of tired of explaining myself. Um, so I, want, I'm, I'm, I just want to take on a different challenge in a different place. The Post came to me during the elections um, in October of 2020, they asked me to write a column, and I did, about the Latino vote, sort of like what we were talking in the past segment, like, stop talking about the Latino vote. This is why Arizona is going to turn blue. And, you know, um, and uh, uh, and then one thing led to another. I wrote another column and another, and I really liked dealing with the editors there. And then they proposed a, an exclusivity contract uh, where I am there person here, uh, write for them exclusively. I have a commitment to write a certain number of columns, um, but it's all kind of self-guided, you know, like I have an editor I talk to here, my ideas, my thoughts, and he's usually pretty like, hey, great. And we have a conversation about it. We try to refine the ideas when they need refinement. Um, and then they let me lose and, and I do my thing. You used a pithy phrase in, in describing the times, tired of explaining myself. Could you elaborate <laughs> on that? Well, you know, like um, the assumptions people make about people like you, right? Uh, like people like me, I should say. Uh, don't talk like that. People are going to think you have a chip on your shoulder. I heard that, you know, uh, gosh, you're always so chipper, so happy. You um, you might want to think about not moving your hand so much, um, or your clothes are so colorful. Brazil, that's so exotic. You know, all those little things that 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 people who are uh, of another country and it, are hearing this may may be familiar with. Um, it just gets to a point where you're like, you know, how about you just look at me as one more person in the New York Times who happens to look different than most of the people at the New York Times. 
Um, and then we can, and if I propose something or if I have a different approach, a different perspective, how about hearing me out instead of saying like, nice thought kid, but here's how you're going to do this. And uh, not to say that they use these words, but that's how I perceived it. And I think the way we perceive things is really important because we, we, people of color especially tend to to smother that and feel like it's our fault and it's not you know today i say i am not no longer looking for a seat at the table i have set my table and you are welcome to sit at my table and hear from me so i think it's a much better mm-hmm. way for me and healthier way for me to see to approach my contributions to recognize my value my worth in the importance of having voices like mine out there Maybe that's why they still call her the gray lady. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's uh, although gray's kind of cool these days. I have a, a student who uh, recently uh, uh, got the silver dye on her hair and it looks really cool. And, you know, I don't know, maybe being gray is cool. Uh, I have a lot of gray hairs that uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't mind and I don't try to hide. I think they're, earned. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're very well learned. Yes, yes. So tell us about the uh, ASU Borderlands project. We only got a couple minutes left, but let's get some sense of what you're doing now. So my title is Southwest Borderlands Professor Professor of Practice. Uh, And uh, so Southwest Borderlands Professor of Practice, the long title, mouthful. Uh, It essentially, what what the project or the program means is that we have uh, professors and also Cronkite Noticias, our Spanish language news service, and our Borderlands team in Cronkite News, our English language news service, that are focused on issues that affect uh, my immigrant and border communities. And when I say border communities, we, we don't necessarily, and I for sure don't necessarily uh, def- don't define those as Uh, the geographical borders here. I talk about borders even within our own valley and city, right? Central Avenue is a a border. Um, Roosevelt, or maybe a little bit south, let's say Jefferson is another border, right? Um, The city of Phoenix, if you cut across, you know, east to west, um, uh, uh, Jefferson and north to south central, the quadrants are very well defined and you can see the differences, socioeconomic and demographic differences with, within them. Uh, and especially as you move from east to west, north to south, right? So um, so these are the types of, of things that this team very intentionally explores because it's one way that the Cronkite School has uh, 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 chosen, and I, I think it's a very wise choice, uh, to promote more equity, more awareness, um, and more uh, and to turn eyes very specifically to communities that are part of our city, part of our state, but that often go uh, misinterpreted, uh, misrepresented, or uh, flat out ignored in news coverage. Before we go, let me give you, you have a wonderful newsletter. Tell people how they can subscribe. So if they like what I say or don't like what I say and just want to, you know, get it in their inboxes every month, they can go to uh, FernandaSantos.com. Um, that's my website. And there is going to be a little box there. You can subscribe. And I send a monthly newsletter where I talk about writing. I'm writing a memoir. So I, I talk about that, um, writing in general, other stuff that I've written about. And, uh, and you know, whatever is in my mind as it applies to to this world around me here. Thank you very much. And for my part, MikeOneal.org will let you reach me on social media or email or any other way. It's a gateway to, uh, to, to reaching me one way or the other. 
Fascinating hour. I thank you for joining us again. You were one of our first guests, I think, seven or eight years ago. And yep. it's good to have you back. Maybe you won't wait so long next time. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be back. Thanks. Bye-bye. We're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters. We're